And now we will take time to hear a word from our Father, beginning as we have for these many weeks in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 5. And then I would want you to hold on to that and flip over to Philippians chapter 4. Deuteronomy chapter 5 that's going to spell out the commandment we're looking at today. And uh, Philippians chapter 4 is a testimony. Testimony of of a person who had begun to obey it and the difference that it made in his life. Uh, Today on this Memorial Day, I've thought how appropriate it is. Uh, We take time to remember uh, what it cost to make it possible for us to gather here so freely. It, it, It came at great cost. Many have given their lives so that we can experience what still many in our world cannot experience. The opportunity to have this kind of freedom and not only to gather and worship, but also to live and share our faith. Now, today we're going to think about the cost again to make it possible for us to live freely. God in the ancient days rescuing people from Egypt. And of course, for us, when we think about it in the greatest way, the death of Christ, we were purchased at a great price. The precious blood of Jesus given so that we might live freely. And that life that we are to live is what has been spelled out by the Maker's instructions. And today we begin by looking at verse 4. Let us stand, remembering that the words that we hear are words from the Creator of our lives and the Creator of the universe, our Father. Verse 4. The Lord spoke to you, Face to face out of the fire on the mountain. And he said, verse 6, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Then the first nine commands bringing us to verse 21. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not set your desire on your neighbor's house or land his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. And then again, I said, Philippians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul, writing of all places from a prison, writes in verse 10, I rejoice. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last... You have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. Now, I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do everything through Him who gives me strength. And this is the Word of God. Thanks be to God. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings? Well, not I. I'm quoting Tom Brady, New England uh, Patriots quarterback, after he'd won his third. 
Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what is. I reach my goal, my, my dream, my life. I think, God, it's got to be more than this. I mean, this isn't. This can't be what it's all cracked up to be. I love playing football and I love being quarterback for this team. But at the same time, I think there are a lot of other parts about me I'm trying to find. This, this was in Tom Brady's 60 Minutes interview. Some of you may have remembered it. It, it. it was quite shocking to many people in the world, especially to many men in this world, because Tom Brady had achieved what so many people think, if I could only achieve that, then, then I would have found life. I mean, winning three Super Bowl rings, playing pro football, dating supermodels. I mean, everything that people dream about, he had achieved it. And yet he says, there's got to be more than life to life than this. Now, now some were shocked, but I am telling you, I loved his transparency. I thought, this is... This is an honest man, and it's also a very thoughtful man to know that there has to be more to life than simply the things that this material world can give. Uh, And we should know it, too. And yet still somehow we get into this world and we begin thinking, if only I could have that, if only I could achieve that, then I would find life. It begins when we're children. Children keep thinking that if I could get to this particular stage... Then life will be better. I'll never forget when I was a little boy in West Virginia, we had this big sink that even when I'd get on the chair, I couldn't get up and get my own glass of water. And it's silly, I know, but I still remember. It's silly, but I thought someday when I'm able to reach the sink and get that glass of water, life will be good. I had a brother who was two years older, my, my brother Chuck, and he had the day that he could reach that sink. I tell you, I was proud of him. Everybody who came to our door, I rushed up to the door and I'd throw it open and I would say, that's my brother Chuck. He can reach the sink. (laughs) Well, believe it or not, the day came when I could do it too. And it was good, but it wasn't all that great. And it just keeps going on like that, doesn't it? You think someday, especially if you have older brothers or sisters, when I get to go to school like they went to school, then... Life will be good. Then after you've been in school for a while, you say, when I can finish this (laughs) and get out of it, then life will be good. And then all through those times, you keep looking for things that will make life better. If I could just go out with that person, if I could just make that team, if I could just complete this degree, if I could just get that job, you get it. If I could just get that promotion. If, if we could just have those children, if we could just have those children leave home, <laughs> if, if we could just have grandchildren, if I could just retire and have some on and on it goes. And we achieve those things. We come to those points and in having them, it's like vapor. We just keep looking. We keep looking for something else. It's, it's, it's a knowledge inside of all of us as human beings. That there's more to live for than anything that this world can give. We know it's true, right? All thoughtful people know it is true. And yet still, there's this tug that if only I could have that or do that, 
then it'll be better. Uh, philosophers since Friedrich Nietzsche have called this Sehnsucht. It's a German word. Do you know that word? It's a searching. It's, it's a deep longing for something probably outside this world that we cannot find. It's something that, that C.S. Lewis perhaps wrote about more than anyone. He wrote about it so beautifully because all the while in his earlier life, when, when, when he tried to be an agnostic or an atheist, he always had what he called an inconsolable longing. That's what he writes about in his Pilgrim's Regress. That the pilgrims living this life have this inconsolable longing in our hearts. And he said, for what we know not yet. And it's that longing for something that goes beyond this world that, that, that I want to talk about today. It's the Tenth Command, and you know what it says, Deuteronomy 5.21. You might wonder what on earth it has to do with this, with contentment, and this inconsolable longing for something that must go beyond this world. Because the commandment just says, you shall not covet. And then it has that list of neighbor's wife, or house, land, manservant, maidservant, ox, might be the one part of the Ten Commandments that you, you don't break. Well, I'm not coveting an ox right now. Or his donkey or anything else that belongs to his neighbor. Because when you read the command on, on face value, it just seems to be talking about coveting, not contentment. And yet, when we take time to think about it, contentment is what it's about. Content with putting God before anything else in our lives. Contentment with living as God tells us to live. Contentment with what God provides. See, this first commandment, let God be God, is the first commandment for a reason. It gives us the foundation for all the others. In other words, if you put God before anything else in your life, you and I will have the proper response to him and be willing to obey whatever else he says, knowing that God loves us and is the one who's made us and who tells us how to live. But I'll tell you, it's this last one that is the tenth commandment for a reason, too that provides an understanding of why you and I break the commandments. It really shines a light on our hearts, you know, on our inner beings. It takes place where many of the other commandments don't take place, inside of us where nobody can see it. We're probably never going to be prosecuted for, for coveting somebody else's house. Breaking this command can happen when everybody else in church and in the community says, what a fine person. What a fine person. See, it, it's not stealing or killing or committing adultery. But when you think about it, it may be the command that helps us to understand why we break all the others. Because as we're going to see it, it's this disillusionment and discontentment with what we have that often triggers rebellion against God or any authority, often triggers hatred of people unfaithfulness in our marriages, and even things like gossip. So, so here's what I'm going to do today. I'm going to start with the command and think about coveting, and then I'm going to end our entire series by looking at this testimony of a life of a person who has learned to obey it. And we're going to see that it's good. All right, the content of the command. We come to that tenth command, Deuteronomy 5.21. You need to notice that it says, Do not covet... Do not have your heart desire things that don't belong to you. I, I want to say immediately that that word covet is not a, a negative word in the Bible. 
It's more of a neutral term. It has to do with a, a deep longing, a passion, you know, passion for something. And it's not bad to have a passion for some things. And the Bible sometimes uses it positively. In fact, the Apostle Paul will say that we should covet, have a passion for the greater spiritual gifts that could bring blessing to others within the body of Christ. So, so coveting, in one sense, can be good, provided that what it is we are after is something that is good. Now, what, what it's prohibiting is that, it's, it's even hard to talk about it, but I'm going to do my best, that inner grasping that, that says, I've got to have that, or I'm not really alive. I've just got to be able to do that, or have that relationship, or my life is empty. Again, it's not stealing, or it's not adultery. It's, it's setting our hearts on such things, that those things come into the place of God. And, and we think that those are the things that, that can make us alive. Well, what kinds of things? Well, look again at chapter 5, verse 21, and you see God gives us sort of a, a list of the kind of things he talks about. He says the things that can come into the focus of our lives, those things that we can set our heart's desire on, that inconsolable longing, can take place in our family, family lives. Specifically, he talks about do not covet somebody else's wife. And I know that the most obvious way that that can happen is through the breaking of the seventh commandment, through adultery, but I, I want us to think about the fact that this can happen in a way that is completely uh, non-carnal. It, it can be that, that we are in a relationship, within a, a marriage relationship, that we're, where we're not being sexually unfaithful to a husband or wife, and still we are so dissatisfied and think that if my husband or wife were like somebody else, that, then it would be a whole lot better. Uh, we might even come to church and think that other marriages are so perfectly. If only my husband could talk to me as much as that person seems to talk to other people, would communicate as well as that person communicates then. You see, that, it's this kind of thing he is getting at. It can happen with regard to our children. Uh, we've had a struggle in our home with our children, and then we look at other children. They actually go to church with their parents. If only my child were like that. I'm looking down at my son as I talk about that. Uh, then, but then often it, it becomes something else, almost anger with God. But of course, in their family, uh, the wife or the husband didn't have to work as much as we did. And of course, they can be better because, because our situation is different. If our situation were like theirs, then it would be much, much better. That's why we have our problems. And at the end, it's God's fault. God says, do not think that if those things were put at the center of your being, that then life would be all that it should be. God also says it's possible to uh, covet other people's property. And we know that. And, and there he said, began with saying, don't covet your neighbor's house or land. And I, I thought about that. I thought this must strike us. Much more directly in 21st century Southern California, more than it did back in the ancient world. Because we sometimes become so obsessed with our living situation. I mean, many of us, especially those of us who are older, we, we can just walk through this thing. We remember that time in our lives when we thought we'd never be able to have a home. Scraping together everything we possibly could, we buy that first little bitty, bitty, bitty home. And we're so happy there for the first six months until our close friends buy a bigger one. Oh, man, ours just has two bedrooms and one pretty small bath. 
And they, they just bought a three bedroom with. The, oh, man, we've got to get that. And then you get to three and it's got to be four bedroom. And then you say, oh, we need a three car garage. And it goes on and on and on. Now, listen to me carefully. It's not that there's anything wrong with wanting to improve our homes, or our living conditions. Don't misunderstand me. It's just so often that the motivation is not for, for more space or, or even for comfort. It, it, it becomes this thing that if I had that, then I'm alive. And sometimes it's a matter of wanting to keep up with the um, uh, Joneses. Look at Jeff. Or Sutton's. See, it's always dangerous to sit up front because you become a target of the pastor's sermons, don't you think? It's this matter of trying to keep up with those that God brings across our paths. Look, look at where we are at our stage in life, dear, while everybody else around us is doing so much better. It's a discontent with what God has provided and this thought that that is what will make us live. It's covetousness. And, and it doesn't stop just with our houses. And that's why God adds on these things like manservant, maidservant, ox or donkey. All, all week as people came across, you know, across my path, I would stop them and say, what would that be like in our day? And almost always the first response would be, if only I had something like that 52-inch flat screen TV. Or, or that car. Or, or nowadays, maybe it's enough money to buy gas to put in the car that we have. <laughs> but the, the, the idea is the same. Sort of status symbols that we think will elevate the way that we are alive. Oh, if only we have X like Joe and Alice have. If only we could do what Frank and Sally do. You know, they're getting to go to Hawaii on their vacation this year. We're only getting to go to Bakersfield to the sand festival or, or, or whatever. And, and for our, our college students, because that's been my life for so long, I know this difficulty. Oh, my friend is going to get to go to that Ivy League school or to that other place. Why I have to stay closer to home. And the thought that if I could have and do what she or he does, then everything will be better. Of course, you know that the whole advertising scheme that you and I live in, in our consumer marketing, uh, makes it so that the only way that we really do well in a a consumer world is if everybody is left discontent, right? The, The advertising has to make you think that you can't be happy with what you have, so you've got to get this in order really to be alive. And so every advertisement is promising extraordinary things. I remember I was taking a class in marketing back in the 70s because I did my MA in communications. And in that class in marketing, we were looking at the absurdity of all of this, particularly one toilet paper commercial that had a royal toilet paper with diamonds and pearls all around it, trying to make us think that only if you get this brand can you really live. Just absurd when you think about it. It's absolutely absurd when, when you think about it. Oh, it starts when we're young. If I, I'd love to have just a telephone like my friends have. But the moment you get it, you think, oh, but I need an I, iPhone, <laughs> you know, really, to, to, to enjoy life. And on and on it goes. You know, a survey was shown that the two top uses of leisure time among Americans, are number one, watching TV, and number two, shopping. Now, you got to think about that. 
watching TV so that all of the advertising is making you dissatisfied with what you have, going out to shop so that you can buy it, so that once you have it, you come back and find out there's something new on the market that you've got to have, sending you out to shop to do it. It made me think what I thought of with this, with this was back in the 80s, I remember reading an Associated Press news article that came through the Chicago Tribune. It was of a snake that had gotten into a home in Australia. And somehow it had slithered in and it had gotten up into the canary cage. Of course, once it had gotten into the canary cage, it had devoured the canary. But once it had devoured the canary, it left a lump in the snake. Are you visualizing this? I thought I should probably put it up. So that it couldn't get back out. It's what I call being a prisoner of appetite. (laughs) Bad bad joke. So as the owners of the house came in, there was the snake dangling there. And, of course, they they, they grabbed the the shears and killed it. See, it's become a PG-13 sermon uh, suddenly. I thought of that and I thought, this is sort of a graphic illustration of what happens to us. We keep thinking that something in this world, something in this world will do it. We do everything we can to get hold of it. We become gripped by it. And I've seen so many things like this. People take an extra job and never take a Sabbath. So they're weary. Lives out of sync. Um, They work harder and harder and never spend any time with their kids so that their families are out of sync. They go and take loans until they're bankrupt. They go out and buy the things that they think that will do it, that will do it, until the credit cards are so charged up they can never pay it. They go home hospitalized with ulcers, high blood pressures. They worry, they worry, until something snaps in the body or the mind. And and we come to church, and all of us, I think all of us say, Father, this is not how you made life to be lived. And God says, let me give you an instruction because I love you. Do not covet those things. Life is more than those things. Put those things at the heart of your being and you won't live. Put God at the center of your being and allow those things to be added to extras and they'll bring joy. And you say, is that possible? Can anybody really live like that? And that brings us to Philippians 4. I think your outline calls it a call to contentment. I decided just to call it a testimony of a life well lived. Testimony. Somebody has found the secret. Not, not like Rhonda Burns' book, The Secret, The Secret, to, so that you can manipulate and get all these things. Because I am so convinced that if you get all those things, you're still not going to be alive. But a secret that those things are not at the heart of real living. I, I want you to look again at what Paul says there in. in Philippians chapter 4, verse 12. He says, I know what it is to be in need. And I know what it is to have plenty. Uh, we know he, he knew what it was to, to live in need because he was in prison when he wrote this thing. <laughs> but did, did Paul ever know what it meant to have plenty? Do you know that the evidence in the book of Acts shows us that Paul almost certainly came from a very, very wealthy home. And, of course, had, had one of the most outstanding educations that the ancient world could provide. So he said, I've had both. But in the midst of all of this living, I have learned the secret. What is it? I've learned something of being content in any and every situation. Now, just to show you this, 
I want you to see the circumstances that surround this wonderful text. Paul had received a thank you gift from the people in the church in Philippi. And uh, at the end of his letter to them, it's one of his favorite churches. At the very end of his letter, he wants to send back a little thank you note. It's, it's the right thing to do. Any society, right? You've received a gift. You were in need. People were generous with you. He wanted to say thank you. But he was a little embarrassed in saying it. He, he wanted to say, I'm not trying to get you to give even more than you've given. The church in Philippi was a very generous people, like the church at Lake Avenue Church. Oh, every week I tell you, I'm so thankful for you. Uh, that, that as you've seen the, the work of God and seen the opportunities you've given so generously. Other churches didn't do this back in the ancient world. And this church, probably Paul's favorite church, they saw his need and they had given. Uh, but, but the way he says thank you is, is uh, it's a little bit awkward. On one hand, look at verse 10. He says, I rejoice that you did it. I'm glad you're remembering me. Uh, down in verse 14. It was kind of you to do this. But, verse 11, it's not that I'm complaining about what I have. Or in verse 17, it's not that I'm pushing for another gift. Some of the the, uh, scholars and commentators read this and say we should criticize the Apostle Paul. Because he's rather ungracious in saying thank you. What, What do you think? I think that criticism is unfair. You know what Paul is like? He's like so many spiritual people I've met. He was embarrassed about personally receiving money or gifts from other people. He needed the help. He needed the help. So, and it wasn't that his gratitude wasn't real. That, that's why he has the thank yous that are there. But he, at the same time, didn't want people to think that he was angling to get them to give more and more. As sometimes it can be. It feels like a bottomless pit, doesn't it? That, that people will never be thankful for, for what is provided. It's a lesson that I keep wanting to learn myself. Because Paul w- was unashamed about raising money for others. Or, or for the church. Uh, read 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 and, and you'll see this. But, but this gift had come to him personally. And that was different. So uh, do you feel it? He's afraid that too much enthusiasm in saying thanks is something that, that would be misinterpreted. He wants to say thank you without making all the people think that they have to give him yet again. He'd been in trouble. They'd helped him. They'd really helped him. So kind of as a PS to his letter, he says, I want you to know that you were really kind. But here's the point as as Christians. He wanted them to know that there is something that is a far greater security than any financial gift. And what he wanted them to know was that Christ at the center of our lives is the only thing that is a true security in this world. He wanted them to know that even if he had nothing and even if he had to stay in that prison in Rome, he was a man at peace. That he would trust God. That he was content. The the word, verse 11, that's used for contentment with me, is really interesting. Um... It was, it was a word that was quite common in the ancient world. There was a number of philosophies that, that were sort of dominant in the ancient world, and one of them was Stoicism. And they used this word all the time. It was one of their highest things. They said people in the world are discontented. Why? They said because they don't have what they want. Right. 
they also rightly said, look, people all around us are chasing after things under the illusion that when they have them, they won't be discontented anymore. See, first century, the same sermon as you hear in the 21st century. Sounds just like your pastor. They knew that the desire for material things, once it had gripped the human heart, would leave us unsatisfied. They say, you'll only want something more, something new, something better. And they said, that is futile. But the difference between Stoics and your pastor's message is, when they said, if you want to find contentment, this is the only way to do it. Purge your inner being of all desire, they said. The only way to be content is that you dare not want anything. You dare not have any passion for anything. Don't love anything. Don't hate anything. Then you'll be content. What do you think of that? You know what I've thought? I said this way of pursuing contentment is like a doctor. Whenever someone comes and says, I have a headache, he says, I know how to deal with it. Cut off your head. Don't have a head. It's not going to ache. If you don't have any emotions, they're not going to hurt. But I am convinced of this, that God has made us to feel deeply. And the way to be content is not to shut down our emotions. Now, the Apostle Paul uses the very same word, but he makes it something that is so distinctive for us as Christians. What's different? Two things. First, Christian contentment is unbelievably flexible. It's unbelievably flexible. Just look again at verses 11 and 12 in case you missed it. I am not saying this because I am in need, because I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. See, I know what it is to be in need, Paul says, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any situation, in every situation. What is he talking Whether I'm well fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I have learned to be content. See, he takes up these two opposite extremes. The one is the one of self-indulgence. You go out and get all that. It's the philosophy of the, uh, of the playboy that says, if I can go out and experience everything in this world and have everything I want, then that's what I was made for and I will live and it's futile. But the other side is, is, is the problem of the ascetic that says that you should not enjoy things in this world. Which doesn't seem to be true of the Bible either, does it? I mean, Jesus was criticized for enjoying things in ways that John the Baptist followers were not. All the things in this world really are a part of God's creation. And if they're put in the right place, they are to be enjoyed. You see, the problem of the one who's self-indulgent is that we've never learned how to be hungry. And that's a challenge to most of us. That's a challenge to most of us. But there is a problem on the other side of the ascetic, of the killjoy that they've never learned to celebrate. I mean, when Jesus would talk about what the kingdom of heaven is like, he would often say, it is like a great party. And yet you and I all know churchgoers who think that that can't possibly be. I don't know what they're going to do in heaven when we have the marriage supper of the Lamb. And as everyone is singing and laughing and rejoicing and feasting, I think some people's faces are going to crack because they haven't smiled in so long that we see that all the things in this world are a part of God's creation. When he was done, he said, it's good. It's good. And the things that he's made, he, he didn't make us for them. He made them for us. 
But the problem is when those things take God's place and come into the center of our beings, they let us down. I've thought about them, that all of these things that so many people in our world put at the heart of their lives, they're kind of like icing. Now, I really like icing. But if you make that the staple of your meals, if all that you have for for lunch today is icing, and let's say that's all you have for, for three days of eating, what would that be like? I'd say, I'd say, give me something else. I, I know what it would do. It would make us, it would make us sick. But Paul says, listen, I've learned how to enjoy this world. I've learned to abound and to thank God for those things without those things having to be the center of my being. So that if they are taken away as they were when he was there, uh, they won't ruin my life. But that is not at the heart of my life. See, this is the thing about Christian contentment. It should be remarkably, remarkably flexible with regard to material things or personal accomplishments. And then the second part of the lesson is the source, the source of his contentment. And this is that great verse, verse 13. Mark it down, highlight it. Here is the secret. I can do everything. I can handle any situation. How? Through Him. Through Christ. Who gives me strength. Now, now as you look at this, the the Stoics loved self-discipline. I can do it if I discipline myself. Paul says, no, absolutely not. The beginning is when you say, I cannot do it myself. I've tried that. I've gone after it hard, and I've gotten what I wanted to get, and that is not it. Just like Tom Brady said, there's got to be more to life than this. Tim Keller, I was listening to a message of his. He put it so well. Uh, It's something that has to be learned. And he said, until you recognize you are incapable of making yourself content, you will not be content. I better say that again so that you can hear it. Until you recognize that you are incapable of making yourself content. You have no hope of being content. In other words, it begins, believe it or not, by throwing away the self-help books. It begins by saying, I cannot do it. Father, I thought I could do it by getting this. I thought I could do it by accomplishing that. I thought I could do it by completing this, by by getting that relationship. But now I just have to own. That's not it. There has to be more. I'll just give you a personal testimony with this. You know, when I was working so hard all of these years for my Ph.D., John, I'll look down at you with this as John goes after his doctor of, uh, of music, ecology. It directs your life. You have all these things that are happening, but you begin to think, when I complete it, when I complete it, everything will be better. People will respect me more. Churches will open up. And when they do, everything will be good and perfect. Do you know what happens? And and we have many in, in the church here who have done this. When you complete it, when you complete it, do you know what happens to almost everyone? We call it post mortems. You feel like you've died. You you thought that that would do it, but once you get it, it doesn't. And nobody else really cares. 
<laughs> except those who maybe really love you. And you keep trying to tell people what you've worked on, what you've accomplished, but they'll only listen 15 seconds. And you find out that those things that many people think that is an accomplishment, this is great. You'd even tricked yourself into thinking it would do it. It doesn't satisfy. It doesn't fulfill. We start by saying, I know I cannot do it. So Paul sat there in a prison cell, damp, lonely. But he didn't just grit his teeth and bear it. He had something that could not be taken away from him. Something that in this world could not separate him from what really mattered, which for him was the love of God in Christ Jesus. I can live through this and be happy, he said to them. Thank you for your gift. It was so good to eat again. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. But I just want you to know that that's not what life is all about. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Now, note, this is not the word that a wealthy man just glibly throws out to a suffering man. This this was the word of a poor man given to rich people. You, you, You see that, don't you? The one sitting in the prison is turning to all the others and saying, in the midst of this, I can rejoice. I am really alive here in this prison to be content is to know that Christ is at the center of my being. So what I am all about cannot be taken away. And and so the question comes to us as we gather here. Are we content in Christ? Such a big question, isn't it? I think we gather here each week to try to think about what that really looks like. To be content in Christ. Because everything, once we leave this place, makes us think, no, 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 no. Yeah, of course I'm a Christian, but I really do need to have this. And if I don't get that promotion, I'm going to be really mad. And yet, even if we get it, that Sehnsucht sets in. The longing for something that goes beyond this. That Tom Brady testimony. I've had what almost every man in this world wants to have. And don't try to tell me that this is all that life is about. There has to be more out that. Than that. And so we see that the key to the tenth commandment, be content, is the first commandment. God first. That when He is first, that is something that can never be taken away. We've come full circle. In the series on the Ten Commandments. I don't know where we go from here. Maybe we'll just keep going in the circle. That when God is loved. When God is loved with our whole being. Then everything else can simply take its place around that. That's why Jesus said here. Here's what you have to seek first. Seek first the reign of God. Then all the other things that you need to live. Whatever they may be. Will be added unto you. Again, C.S. Lewis wrote about this so often. He wrote about it so often. I wanted to quote about 53 different places. Uh, because he saw this. When he was, tried to be an atheist, he saw that there had to be more than that. And so he kept writing about it. After he found Christ, he had found the center of his life. My favorite place that he writes about it is in my favorite book of his, Weight of Glory. I put a part of it up here. Just look at it. Just look at it. This knowing that there has to be something more, another reality beyond the material world. He said, in speaking of this desire for our own far-off country, which we find in ourselves even now, I feel as 
a certain shyness. I feel as if I'm trying to rip open an inconsolable secret in each one of you. When in a very intimate conversation, the mention of this longing, you know, this longing for something beyond this world becomes imminent, we grow awkward and affect to laugh at ourselves. The secret we cannot hide and cannot tell, though we desire to do both. We cannot tell it because it is a desire for something that has never actually appeared in our experience. We cannot hide it because our experience is constantly longing for it. These things in this world, these things that we thought might fulfill the longing might be good images of what we actually desire. But if they are mistaken for the real thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the heart, breaking the heart of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found. They are the echo of a tune we have not heard. They are news from a country we have never visited. And what the Bible says is we can visit that country and begin to know the God who gives himself to us when we place our faith in Christ. So at the end of this series on the Ten Commandments, I turn to you and ask, have you come to know spiritual realities? That there is a God who loves you, is ready to forgive you, and more than that, to fill your inner being. You and I are human beings. I'm telling you, we were made in God's image. We were made to be filled by God. We are eternal beings that only an eternal God can satisfy. Do you know him? That, That is the biggest thing that the church has to offer to you. A real relationship with the eternal God. That very thing that all of us long for from childhood on is what he offers to us. He says, you don't have it because you've walked away from me, but I love you anyway. So I will forgive you of your sins and give myself to you if you will entrust yourself to me. Become a follower of Jesus. So this morning I'm going to ask you to make sure that he is the Lord of your heart and your life. For those of us who have made those kind of commitments to Christ, but who keep trying to put other things in his place, I am going to call upon us to put him in his rightful place at the center of your being. I'll tell you, put God first. Live as he teaches us to live. And we will have a life that when everybody else looks at us in this world where people are striving for things to satisfy them but never finding it, they will see in us people who are living as the creator made us to live to his glory. Amen. Let's pray together. As John, I think you're going to come and lead us in a wonderful song. Our Father, take this your word, apply it to our hearts and lives. Father, for some who have come today who have never really known you or are still longing for that other world, may this be their day of faith. Speak even now. Father, for all of us here who know that you have to be at the heart of our beings and yet so many other times put other things uh, 
into your place. Try to fill that inconsolable longing with the things of this world. Forgive us, Father. May this be a day of complete and full lived rededication that we may have joy and that it may go well with us. In Jesus' name.